Hello everyone, I'm Kira, and you're listening to another episode of Arts Insight. I hope you are all doing well. I'm not going to talk about coronavirus again, but I just want to say I hope that you're all minding yourselves and, you know, taking a little bit of time out to give yourself some credit because it has been the craziest year that hopefully will never happen again. So, you know, we're all in this together, like the High School Musical song says, you know? Anyways, (laughs) enough of that. Enough of the C word. I have another very exciting episode for you this month. A little bit different because unlike most of my other episodes, I will not be interviewing in this conversation. But this conversation is with Franco B, very popular Italian visual artist. He's going to be chatting to Melissa Boyle, who's the artistic director of Rural Red, and Sylvia Serfanovic. I hope I pronounced that right, by the way. I'm really sorry if I didn't. Um, she is creator at Apolitical. Franco did two exhibitions in Rural Red. So there was, first of all, it was How to Say It The Way It Is, and then Unloved, which was last year. So yeah, it's a really, really good interview. Franco talks a lot about his background, his artistic process. It's actually really insightful and I would really recommend listening to it because not only is he an amazing artist, he's actually an amazing person. Like I actually, see I met him, that's my claim to fame. But no, um, I met him when he was at Rural Red and he's just the loveliest person. Um, he has such a like aura about him. I don't even know how to explain it, but it definitely comes off in this interview. I hope you really enjoy this. Uh, normally our episodes are in two parts um, and that's going to be the same as this because it's quite a long interview and we didn't really want to cut bits out because it, we feel like it's very relevant. Um, so yeah, I'll be back to you after part one. I hope you really enjoy and I will talk to you then. So my name is Melissa Boyle and I'm the director of Rio Red. And I'm Sylvia Serafinovich, curator at Apolitical. And I'm Franco B, visual artist. <laughs> How many questions do you have? Well, I wrote them down just a while ago and I was thinking about just thinking about your work. Um, and I suppose some of the questions that I'm interested in is some of the things that we were talking about earlier in terms of your use of space, but also your you as a person and there's some linking in some way with this, but your incredible ability to observe people and very, very quickly kind of take in what they're about, who they are. And I think that that's an incredible kind of personality skill in a way. Sometimes I think that's that, a lot of time is luck yeah. and trusting yourself. Sometimes you can get into trouble. Because you assume, you know, you assume that people sometimes are, and they're not, you know. So sometimes I get it wrong, but most of the time, I mean, the only thing I have is to trust myself. So I tend to, that most of my life served me well, you know, to trust my instincts. Then I regret when I cannot have an input, and then I think, no, it's too much, you know, mm-hmm. don't do it. And then I, I, I think I was right. I wish I did it. You know. Yeah, but there's something very particular about that very natural instinct that you have about kind of 
reading people and reading a situation. And I think that that kind of feeds in to almost the way that you work with spaces in terms of how you want to guide people through a space. And I think that you're really kind of exceptional at addressing this. And I've worked with you on a few exhibitions now and that there's something about the that quality that you have in terms of yeah. bringing the internal to the external within spaces and leading people around in order for them to read your work in a very particular way. So I'd like you to kind of speak about, that's a very long lead into it, but I'd like yeah. you to speak about just how you, because I think you are a bit of a master of spaces, how you, how you address spaces um, and how you see them. Because your first, the way that you curated, um, how to say it the way it is, is very, very different from Unloved. Yeah. So I suppose the question is around addressing spaces. And I resp- yeah. I suppose I respond to the moment and to each situation. Also, I think it depends where you are mentally, where you are in the moment, physically, in the space. Um, I think you have to, the main thing is to really be in, I think that there is no, that you have to be on, you know, you have to be on the job. You have to be really in it. You know, it's not something you turn on. So when you turn up to something, you have to be totally dedicated to allow things to happen and to be open for things to happen. Also that, although I realize that I can be, quite, you know, you know, on the line in the sense that no, but I'm open to suggestion, you know, it's not just, I think it's not just about, (coughs) but I have a sense with people around me as well, even if they don't talk, I have a sense, whatever, they think, you know, people will say something, you know, if it wasn't right, I think generally, and so, you know, I have a sense of, yes, let's try, you know? I mean, depends where you are, but, um, depend, but tend to, you know, because I could, I think that's to do with the fact probably that I curate a lot, I curated a lot, as my, I think probably. As much as I showed my work, I also curated other people's work without necessarily putting myself in the in the curation, or not always. I put myself in it, so it's not about that. So I think it's very important because you know, you know how important is the contest and the space, the physical space for me. So therefore. I'm quite aware, although sometimes people complain, you know, oh, you put my work up there, or you only put one. But I think it's silly, because I think sometimes people lose themselves in numbers mm-hmm. and competition, you know, because, yeah, I don't, mm-hmm. you know. But it may be, coming back to what you said about intuition, I think since that, there's uh, some stage in my life I have to kind of assess and kind of guess 
what kind of situation I'm in terms of not having power, how to manage that, you know, an institution, you know, find space where I could escape, like the kitchen, and do wash offering to wash up every night, so I don't have to do, I didn't have to do other things, you know, after that or after dinner, after lunch on a Sunday, if I didn't want to work for three hours, I would say, can I wash plate? Can I help in the kitchen? Can I help the gardener? So you, you know, I was the one of the very few people that did that. That I was that was willing to offer help, and they took it. But it was because I felt safer, you know, mm-hmm. than being all the time with kids and kind of being into fights or people. You know, people wanted. There was a there was a lot of in every group, you know, of 12, 13 kids. There was a way the one that wanted to command. Or the, the, you know, there was a way the victim, and I didn't want to be aided at the two. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want to be in the position. So I was away with adults, try to be with adults, you know. So you learn. I think it's called mm-hmm. survival. And then when you're homeless, actually, you have to learn. I mean, you 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 see situation or when you are in the, you hitchhiking, you travel alone through countries, you have to somehow, you know, hope and at the same time kind of trust yourself, your feeling, you know, and make judgment, you know. It's, it's I mean, it's, I suppose it's like being in a war, you mm-hmm. know. It is. It's like being in a war. I don't think it's different, you know. You have to take it. We don't realize this, but I think we do know because you have to kind of watch who is following you, or, you know, you see a person and think, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe I don't go that way, you know, mm-hmm. or maybe I go that way. You know, sometimes you don't see it. But I suppose, you know, I don't think that um, it's part of, I suppose, my neurosis, you know? I had a feeling that with, with this exhibition Unloved, you, you are bringing war home, like you're showing, because you're putting together on the wall um, depictions of refugees, but also homeless people, and you don't really, um, yeah, you show them as equal and you don't really um, yeah. say who they are. So, by the way, I'm talking about different mm-hmm. battles. I think there's uh, so many battles, mm-hmm. but you know. Yeah, there's one war, which is surviving, and, you know, yeah, in any sense, whatever is domestic mm-hmm. or external. Yes, yeah. and, and by doing... I don't separate that. Mm-hmm. By doing that, you, you, you kind of... Um, allow for people to see um, humans in, in, in those... Yeah. Um, in in those depictions because um, quite often I think we are um, focusing on their identity where they're coming from you know how old they are and and all of that can be a subject of um, judgment mm-hmm. I agree mm-hmm. but also I think the most important thing for me I don't want to do IG prop I don't do IG art I don't do propaganda, I deal with uh, language, as I say a lot of time, with visual language, which is made up of all this event and, and one reading of this event, obviously. So try to manage everything, you know. Yeah, in, you know, 
everything is, I think, is as important. I, and especially I'm not interested in being, I'm not a war artist, I'm not uh, anti-war artist, I'm not, I'm anti, I'm anti any form of violence or abuse, whatever is inflicted by in domestic situation or by society, institution, and violence that, in a way, we allow to happen because the people we vote for or no vote for, you know? Mm. So there's also these things. I have a sense that I feel responsible for everything that happens in the world. I think I am responsible because I don't have any I don't have any power. I mean, I, you know. So the only thing I has is the work. The work has to not take any dignity away. And the work doesn't change anything, really. It's like me posting every day things on Facebook. And while I'm doing it, you know, I'm only seminating information for people that don't use maybe the media for the reason, you know. Rather than putting a selfie, I repost a news thing about some poor woman being, you know, stoned to death because, um, you know, because her husband said she's a lesbian, or in Uganda now, you know, because or in Czechia. So I'm, I know I'm totally powerless, and I know that it doesn't change anything, but I think Information is another form, is a strong form of resistance to share information, you know? I think there's like an incredible strength in you because you, you, you say in an interview um, that's in the newspaper that you know that things don't change and that we keep on making the same mistakes. Mm. It's, it's like in human's nature. Um, but at the same time, you always, you, you keep on fighting and you keep on disseminating. It's everything have, otherwise what do I do? I don't get out of bed anymore. Mm. What do I do? I jump out the window. I take an overdose of heroin. I mean, the option. That there, yeah. What else? When when I saw you um, during this performance, um, Milk and Blood, mm. and you were saying the poem "Insignificant" that is also included in this exhibition. Yeah, that was um, I. Um, I cried three times during that performance because I could uh, so identify with this, um, with with having a platform to say something like you did, but at the same time having this. Massive frustration from the fact that despite, you know, attempts at expressing, you know, what is wrong with the word, like nothing is really changing. And um, and I was um, I was wondering why why did you decide to include that poem in the exhibition, and um, and and also like why did you decide to title the exhibition Unloved? Because you've been thinking about about this um, title for a while. Yeah. Well, I thought. Because, you know, the exhibition is not about necessarily making a new exhibition, new work, and everything has to be new. But there is a thread, you know, it is a thread back to 30 years of my practice, or even, you know, there's a thread, obviously, to my childhood, to everything. So I thought the insignificance was very important because, in a way, the action is insignificant 
you know, showing it can be seen. But at the same time, I think it just shows the, it kind of deals, you know, it's, a, it's also a critique, but, but it also shows, you know, that in a way then you can turn into positive things, you know, yeah, that you know. Or, yeah, but it's also the video. So the, I think there's a thread. What was the other question? About the unloved, why, yeah, the why unloved. you decided to uh, title the exhibition. I don't know where that came from. I did, a ne- I did a neon, you know, the neon. About four or five years ago, I, did, I wanted to do it. And it was about seeing, not to see loving things, you know, what people do or themselves, to see walking around the street, tube station, and I saw a lot of, of people not being loved, or things not being loved, you know? Like you go to a restaurant, you eat shitty food, and you think, where is the love? Where is the love? You know, there's no love in this. What do people do things, you know? But it's also, uh, you know, yeah, because I'm not, I don't see myself as unloved. I'm loved. I'm very loved. You know? So unloved is about those, it's about the, the, the moment and those that, a moment in, that are kind of forgotten and just walk, you know? Like people that just walk past, don't look, you know? They see something. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of stuff like that. Things that just done because they just happen, but they know or they have to happen. But um, there is no love in it, you know? It's like, uh, I don't know, I suppose it's like, you know, there's a service, you know? There is, I see, you know, there's things that happen which can be purely functional, but there's no love in them, you know? Like taking care of somebody. You just do it because, you know, there's a status, there's a statutos that says this person needs to look after. But in my case, again, goes back, you know, I, <laughs> you know, I was removed from my family, you know, put into an institution where there was no love. You know, there was protection, but there was no love. Some kind of protection, but actually not true. There was a different type, you know, in a way, there was obviously what I mean it was better than being with my family, but certainly it wasn't without abuse, you know. But I think um, taking care of people, taking care of people around you, or people you have um, you dealing with, even if it's only for three seconds, you know, people that you just encounter and might not see. And I think, uh, yeah, you know, I think it's very important to be, to be willing to give love. And I love, you can't control love, I can't control it, you know? In a way, if I want to be, you know, if I want to give something to somebody, I would do it because it's the only, it's the only power I have. The only power I have is, really, is to give away what I own, what I have, what is mine. It's the only power I have. 
And that institution that you mentioned that being um, that has been Red Cross, right, in Italy. Yeah, one of them. And and the Red Cross became a symbol that you um, carry on your body, and you also yeah. include that in your practice a lot. Mm. So why why it became um, such a such an because also was a symbol of um, it was a symbol of um, refugee, yeah. The Red Cross, the International Red Cross refugee. And so I had a moment where I said, where I, had, where I thought that we all are refugees in uh, the moment that we are born into this planet. We have to, we, we are alien. We become alien to the planet we're in. And uh, obviously, subsequently, we are indoctrinated. It doesn't matter what kind of social, political, geographical, religious kind of environment you're born to, then you are then instructed to behave according to those kind of beliefs and morals. So originally, we are, an empty, we are empty. We are empty, we are animal, and we only you know, so the moment that you start to have feeling about who you are, your identity, your sexuality, the things you like or not like, if they're not corresponding to what your immediate kind of environment is, hey, your family or the school, the community you live in, you're fucked. So you are instructed, but you're not necessarily the person, you know. So you're a refugee. You have to learn how to fit in the community, you know, your family, mm. you know. And this idea that, of course, in Catholic culture, the family, especially the time I, I was a child, was untouchable, you know. You couldn't grasp your family up. It was disgusting, you know, and I did, when I did, when I went to the police, to the Carabinieri, to report my family, it was like, uh, you know, how dare you? You know, if you were my son, I would do the same, you know, and he took out his belt. Then you realize that the best thing to do is to grow fast <laughs> and run, yeah? Mm. You, you learn, you know. But essentially, I think um, this is how animals learn. And we are animals, you know. And um, also, I don't believe that animals don't have empathy. I don't believe that. Mm. Yeah, because I'm feeling. But this idea that animals don't have empathy is not, is not true. When I had cancer, my dog gave me a lot of love, more than ever was licking me, licking me continuously when I was coming home from the radiotherapy. But for hours, we had to stop him, you know. Tom had to grab him and take him in the other room because he wouldn't leave me alone. And now when he then died of cancer, I saw this metaphor that he took mm -hmm. the cancer away from me.
Franco, you, your work is deeply personal, um, and it's it's you know you 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 embody your work in every way. You you wear it. You literally wear it on your skin. How how do you even kind of in touching on moments like this? How do you approach that in terms of making that kind of separation um, that it doesn't become, I suppose, too emotional for you because it's it's your career as well. Um, I don't know if it's a career. I call it vocation. It's like mm. a religious. Mm. It's a form of religion, but I practice. And there is a lot of this um, religious uh, feeling to to this exhibition. The way how you um, present certain um, objects, um, the figure of the cross again. Um, you also said that um, you wanted one of the rooms to feel like like heaven. So I yeah. I was I was wondering um, why. Strange. Why why religion is such an important you know part of you. This is the reference, you know, obviously yes. the reference and heaven is supposed to be a place where innocent people go, and people, mm-hmm. you know. So I like the idea because although I wanted to light and I suppose, you know, I'm interested in also using, because it doesn't mean because I don't, I'm not a Christian and I, or I'm not a Muslim, I don't believe. I mean, I can use those metaphors. These are things, you know, that are there, and I use is the language, you know. So I can use the language. I don't have issue be using. Although I'm not, you know, I don't believe in hell. I don't believe in heaven. I don't believe in hell. If you don't believe in hell, if you don't believe in religion, in Christian, kind of, any any kind of. Whatever is Jehovah's Witness, so you know you're going to this planet where everybody's happy and everybody mixed, you know. Yeah, no, I think uh, it's fine. You know, this is the beauty of uh, language. Language is a virus, and I think that you can only get infected or infect with but you can control it. It's very, you know, not liquid. It's very, trust, you know, you can. And so that's what we do. <laughs> you know, I like the idea also. You know, I think artists don't deal with logic. You know, I would say, you can't be, lo- you know, I, I'm not logic. I'm not logical. I'm, I'm, uh, Metaphorical. I use language as a way to change and use it to suit me. You know, yeah. Mm. You know, so so the sort of words that have a certain of course meaning because of context. But you can change the context of those words. You know, you can turn it upside down. You can fuck it up. You know, yeah. Why not? Yeah, but certainly, you know, I don't see myself, I always say that, I don't see myself as a cheap Jesus, you know. I like the iconography, but I use it, 
you know, because I'm an anarchist, it doesn't mean I cannot use that iconography. The iconography is embedded in me because of my upbringing. Although I reject at the age of 14, I said I didn't believe in God, but I didn't suddenly not like these images. Or suddenly, uh, you know, Caravaggio or Michelangelo, you know, I could, you know, I. And that's the other thing, actually, the test. Fun test talks about my classics, mm -hmm. people don't see it. But yeah, I am, I, I, in a way, I, it's in, you know, it's not something you design, it's inside, you know. You, and then you, you know, I think certainly there is, there's a say, once a Catholic never, you know, Aware Catholic, <laughs> in a way, you know. Although you, although you might, although you, you strictly say fuck that, I don't believe it. But I think mm -hmm. essentially, you know, yeah. Like if it's I, with you since your childhood, it's very yes, difficult. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Guilt and this idea of being an alien when you grow because you talked, you know. Suddenly you are, you know, suddenly you have a. I mean, the idea that I saw the Madonna, the image of a Madonna, the first time I went, where did that come from? You know, I didn't know that I was masturbating, but I had an orgasm and I saw Madonna. Obviously, you know, that was when I was about 10. So obviously from the age of that, I can remember, I was, you know, I was, you know, I was exposed to this iconic, important, mm -hmm figure, you know, that I don't remember, but obviously, you know, for I had priests. It was a priest, run by priests, so I would have been bombarded. And so the first time I have an orgasm, I see a Madonna, you know, but that doesn't make me, a, you know, doesn't turn me into a super religious, you know? <laughs> then when I try again, I didn't see again. But, you know, yeah. Mm. Can I ask you about the materials that you use within your work? Because the you material. have you have a really personal relationship, like with your your work, as we have spoken about before, but also even in terms of the materials that you use within your work, and that everything is made by your hand. Um, with many artists, they would work with a studio, and other people would produce their work for them. Yeah, kind of is that, is that time based, um, almost a, that approach to make them work in terms of it yeah. being time based. Is that important? Yeah, to you because also I think um, it's your calligraphy. It's like writing, you know. It's like when you write. Uh, in a way, I stitch. You know, I couldn't get somebody else to do it. Somebody else could do it quite easily. It's easy. You set up the image and the copy, it. but it's what. You know, is your is your attention or not attention your way or can I say okay you can make the decision. Okay, this this could work, you know, you can make the decision, okay, I'm gonna cut that, go to this or that. Somebody else will just follow the line, you know, or you know. So it's like writing, you know, making art. 
it's like your colleague of his, your signature, I think. And so it's different, there's a sort of things that, of course, to learn, like when I got the marble sculpture, then to learn to do that was impossible, you know, mm. even if I did it for learn 20 years. So, yes, yeah, so you go to people that you see, you like the, the, you know, to people that can make this kind of work and try to kind of convey as much as possible what you're trying to get out, you know, what kind of feeling, whatever, sensuality, beauty, you know? And, you know, if they can't perceive it, what you try to say, then a good piece of work will come out, you know? And, uh, but, yeah, the ceramic, you know, sometimes, I mean, with the ceramic, sometimes I have an assistant, you can, I can tell with one, that he did, you know, with me being there, I can tell, you know, I had to kind of say, you know, change, you know, where mine, I can take liberties, because it's my work, you know, the assistant can't. Mm. So the assistant starts to kind of guess and see what I do, you know? So where I can, I can change my mind any minute, mm -hmm. you know? And that's the beauty of my, I think it's the beauty of making your work yourself, um, the way I work, because I, although I'm focused on what I'm doing, I allow things to happen, you know, I'm not, I'm never too strict, you know, okay, maybe something drops, oh, I like this, let's try again, you know, something happens, mm -hmm. and uh, you go with it, I'm not, um, I don't get too neurotic about work being a certain or way as to represent me. Work has not, doesn't have to represent me, you know? It speaks, yeah. It doesn't have to say, oh, that is Franco B. It doesn't, who cares? Yeah, it has to be able to speak for itself, you know? Yeah, so I'm not, and this is why one of the things that I have some, you know, one thing I was saying years ago, you know, when you see example like Gilbert and George and other, and you think, I don't want to be, I don't want to be, you know, 40 years working and doing the same fucking work because, you know, because that's what people want. There's a queue. And the same with painting, some painters, you know, and uh, I know in some cases, it doesn't name people queuing up for work. I have 30, 40 people waiting for the work and the work changes and then people say, no, I want that one. I want that. I want the one that you won the Turner Prize with, you know? I don't want, you know? And that's a problem, you know, unfortunately, some people are willing to kind of meet that demand because they have, um, you know, they're not free because they have a gallery, you know? that kind of tells them, otherwise it drops them, you know, very, you know, and a lot of gallery, you know. I know galleries that kind of drops pe uh, dropped people because uh, suddenly say, um, you know, I want to move on, I want to experiment. I say, okay, you know, I have this, I have uh, these five people that want exactly the same, a variation of this work or this film, and you say, no, you're on your own. You know, if you say no, but the problem is a lot of people are not willing to say no because, you know, 
once they taste a bit of kind of comfort and kind of, you know, let's say, luxury, they don't want to go back to, you know, they don't want to go back to reality, mm-hmm. you know. Some people are smart and they move away, but not necessarily making better work, but certainly I see an example of people that kind of specifically made a very big in London and they kind of went somewhere really so that, you know, they don't have much to do with the London kind of internet, keep the gallery at distance. But then actually make no, no much better work. You know, yeah, mm-hmm. I won't say, oh, but <laughs> I was shocked, yeah, by somebody I went to school with, mm. yeah, and I was very shocked, I was shit, yeah, yeah, no, because it's not any longer with the gallery that mm-hmm. kind of really constructed this work, because it's not making the work anymore, yeah. it's with a smaller gallery by shit, yeah. Just, I suppose, even on that, in terms of the expectations of people um, and the work that, that you produce. In yeah, the yeah. 90s, you were very well known for your uh, performance pieces um, yeah. and, and the blood pieces. Mm. Was that quite difficult to move on from yeah, that? Because it was there was because an expectation that Yeah, you and would also when I say I remember, I remember telling Dominic Johnson was my assistant at the time before he became, you know, he's now he's a le- senior lecturer at Queen Mary. He wrote a few books. But when he left college, he, he was uh, for a couple of years around me. And we were very good friends. He assisted me in performance. He assisted me with writing. And actually, I let him curate a book in 2006, Planned by Love. Uh, and I remember saying to him, I want to stop bleeding. And he said, but that's your signature. You know, and I says I, I don't want I don't want to be remembered as the guy that bleed, um, and also you know I'm not one trick donkey, you know, mm-hmm. horse whatever, and also I think it's not even about that, but you know it's about uh, you know be free, you know, you know I don't know what I could go, then if I have to in a certain way like that, then I must as well work for somebody. It's less, it's less traumatic, I think. You know, go and work for somebody, get eight euro an hour, and you just, you know, whatever, wash plates. If you do your job all right, people leave you alone, you know? But, you know, if you cannot buy other problem, you know, at a commercial gallery, a quite good commercial gallery in Italy, and start to, you know, to ask me, Certain works, sort of, you know, some stuff, you know, uh, at the end I just go, you know, you sell, you're a bricks, you know, you must as well sell bricks. Why you, mm-hmm. you complain that I'm difficult, but you know, if you sell bricks, it's less difficult because you sell, you know, you don't have to deal with artists, you know, and you make the same amount of money, if not, if you know your job, you know. If you had a kind of resource, so you know, people want to. Some galleries that just do it because you know the thing it gives them. A, it gives them. You know, it's a lifestyle. You know, but they don't take risk. You know, 
they don't take risk. They will, you know, they want mm. you to kind of tie in, you know, kind of like work for them. Like every you now and I think, well, I'll go to, if I need to do this, then I'll go to work in a factory. You know, when I was younger, I had to work in a carry place, place, you know, and when I did something wrong, I got a kick in the ass, you know. So it was, it was, you know, every time the gallerist doesn't like my work, I get kicked in the ass, metaphorically. Well, fuck that, you know? But he doesn't buy the work, or he doesn't support it, or he doesn't show it. Fuck that, I don't know. So I don't allow to be attached. I work with galleries, or whoever wants to be me, but I don't, uh, I don't want to be part of a stable. You know, I know somebody, horse, or sport car, mm -hmm. you know. The gallery will not be able like that, you know. There's Ferraris, there's the, you know, the Ferrari team, you know, then there's the Mercedes, and then there is, you know, you know, McLaren that's not doing very well. You know, it's the same in the art world, you know, with the Hausenvrit and, you know, Y-Cube. You know, that's what they are, the stables, you know? And they bet, they make bets. And yeah, and I think I don't, I don't want that kind of relationship, you know? And yes, you know, I would like to have some time. I think it would be nice to have money to have a studio, my own studio. And, you know, be able to sometime even maybe stop teaching because it's quite stressful traveling to Italy. But hey, you know, there's a positive, there's a, there's a, you, you have to balance in a way, you know, teaching gives me a reason to stay alive at the moment. It's one of those reasons. But then, you know, of course, you know, if I didn't have to teach for three years, probably I wouldn't, you know, and I kind of, just kind of take it easy. Mm -hmm. Just because I to my work. Not because, I mean, I still make work, but, you know, getting uh, stressful, traveling, you know. Yeah. And, you know, in two months, 16 flights, you know. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a huge amount. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just as a quality of life. Quality of life based on your kind of health and the energy you have mm -hmm. and your age, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know. And performance is still really important to yeah. you. Um, and in fact, on tomorrow night, you're starting yeah. the exhibition yeah. with a performance outside, Actually. which is very much then as part of the performance connected to the exhibition. Yeah. Um, both kind of visually, but using, I suppose the, the exhibition is about engaging with all of your, your senses. Yeah. And it forces really the also audience the performance to do that. engages with the work. Mm. So there is kind of mirroring, you know. The performance is not something extra, but it's a part. It's not something, you know, special. It's no. It's, it's uh, an extension. It's, it's totally integral of the show, except, you know, of course, the performance will only happen once, where the show, you know, you can see it more. Essentially, that's what it is. It's the moment in time, and then you miss it. You know, if you're not there, you miss it. You mm -hmm. know? 
Penso ok. But I don't see it as a, you know, it's, 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 it's another object in a way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's kind of, there is this kind of, of course, it's the same thing. I don't think it's something extra or external does a dialogue with what to do inside. But it's both. It's, 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 it's the work. It's another, it's another room. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Except, of course, the room is very, you know, public kind of yeah, place. Yeah, and, and, and temporary. Mm. And the only thing you have left maybe are the marks on the floor or on the wall and the memory. <laughs> if you've seen it, if you were there, yeah. And the, the kind of new introduction of smell or scent is that new within your work? Is it is it it's something new. that you've used it's before? It's totally new. Even I don't know what sound, but you know it's totally new. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea. I don't know how it happened, but they have, I thought I don't know how it happened. But you know, because this is a thing I don't remember things how they happen. You know, but I just kind of, you know. When you're working on something, when things just kind of come naturally, I think. It's not about, you know, kind of, what do I do with this, what do I do with that? It just happens. Suddenly happens, and it happens. And, it's, and I, I, you know, I don't think, you know, there's an idea, there's, I don't see a light bulb, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can you, know, you just, <laughs> can you talk a bit about just you know the I suppose the the smell and memory and how smell and memory works, you know, with within the space and and why these two particular smells? Yeah, because in a way you have a room and installation of feeling that is about the mortuary, is about uh, you know, yeah. Our death, but not just our death in terms of physical as individual, but the death of, you know, of what we do, what we make, you know, this kind of, so this like, uh, so then again using this idea of light and heaviness, but of course the light, there's heaviness in the light. And I think there's light in the heaviness. So there's also the, the arena, the room. But also it was interesting in idea that a lot of the element in the heaviness, you know, the problem most of them, I don't know about the kids, but a lot of them are dead. So in a way, lavanda, I found out that lavanda was uh, from a long time being used to speak to the deaf, to call the dead, you know, in different mm-hmm. cultures. Yeah. Do you know that? No, I wasn't yes. aware of that. Lavanda <laughs> is the... Yeah, and I didn't notice when I thought about, when I thought about lavanda. Just like, I really love lavanda. When I see lavanda flower, I touch them. Mm-hmm. And I like in, in, my, in, in my street, around Waterloo, there's some plants that people love, and I touch them, smell it. 
hello, and then somebody, and I, somebody told me, you know, you know, I mean, far back, you know, um, it was, a, it was, a, it was a smell associated with death, yeah, to call the death, to speak to the death. Yeah, and I think uh, Latin, Catholic, mm. have that kind of sense, yeah. And then I remember this smell through something that happened 20 years ago that I witnessed. Part of it is death. i seen death. And i seen dead people in mortuary and in natural spaces or in the houses. Yeah, a friend of mine did a show and he was, you know, he did a fashion show of the world. I mean, really, he's really out there. He was really out there and he still is. And he hasn't sold this, hasn't sold out. He hasn't sold his name to anybody. But he was really, you know, out there. And better than McQueen, I think. And McQueen wouldn't know, I think, who he was. And uh, this guy's called Karen Christian Paul, and he's an Austrian clothes stylist artist that based in Milan. And uh, yeah, and he's very away on the brink, you know? He's not, doesn't, and he does really, they make work, which obviously is very, Special, you know, not everybody can buy his clothes, but he won't, you know, he won't do, he won't certainly, you know, kind of sell out. He makes art objects, I think. So he did this show where he had bodies on six kind of hospital, trolley, mortuary bed they borrowed from different hospitals around Torino. At least six, and he had bodies on it, and he made body bags, which was actually one, only one, but you could see the feet with the label. And it was all the, and it was a clothes, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was, a, was clothes, it was different patches and texture. The body bag was very beautiful. And he had uh, this little bottle in the in one of the bed underneath and you can stay in the room open and i remember at the moment that was very fresh he had it done and so there was actually it was supposed to represent the smell of a body after three days of a dead body a cadaver when the body becomes a cadaver when and and uh, it was meant, it was meant, you could stay in the room. And I remember very strong of ammoniaca. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, if you collect pee, you know, which I collect pee in the past for performance, but we're talking about 25 years ago. I would do performance with a lot of bags of peas and I would collect peas in bottles to do things. And then you see, you know, plastic bottle. After a week, they start uh, the pee. Eventually, the pee will corrode the plastic. A powerful because the ammoniaca and the smell. After a week, when you open the bottle, mm -hmm. yeah, or the mm -hmm. bag, yeah, 
So the, yeah, our body produces ammoniaca. But there was very strong in this one, because then I asked him who did it, where he got it from, and he said they're not exist anymore, it was 20 years ago. But I still love the I still love the bottle. If you want, I send it to you. So rather than Kano asking, I was already two people were Kano identified to me by friend that could make a perfume like that, you know, smell mm. of blood. I decided not to go to them and they send it to me. When I smelled it, it still smelled disgusting, and it still smelled like a body. But with less, we know ammoniaca. The ammoniaca is gone mm-hmm. in the bottle. And it's a very small bottle like that. And I transfer off into another bottle. The other bottle I left in in London. You know, because obviously something I want to work mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. if I redo it. Mm-hmm. So, and now actually I realize, you know, this money we there's four layers that protects the bottle of plastic, and I remove two, two layers of plastic, and you don't need to open the bottle. Mm. You don't need to. Yeah. So that was part one. I really hope you enjoyed that. Um, just before I set you into part two, I wanted to ask, if you're not already, please follow our socials, social medias. Um, so on Instagram, we are arts underscore insight. On Twitter, we're arts insight one. And on Facebook, we're just arts insight. Um, so for any you know updates, if you want to tag us in anything, if you want to follow us or share us with your friends, we would really really appreciate it. Yeah, give us a bit of feedback as well. We'd love to know like if there's anyone you'd like us to have on, um, anyone you think would like us, whatever. We want to talk to you. Um, So yeah, part two is on its way now. I really hope you're enjoying it so far. Can you also um, speak about the interviews that you conducted before the exhibition that can be heard in the space? Which interview? With um, with the refugees and... I (laughs) am. Yeah. More the interview, I like the idea that they just told me the story. Because mm-hmm. I actually, int- yeah, I did interview, I interviewed the two refugees and I interviewed two people that came to my flat and the rest of the stuff that people sent me. Mm-hmm. I did a call out for people that had a story to tell me whatever was traumatic or domestic or whatever, you know, traumatic, but it could be anything. And uh, stuff came back. The stuff come back that was I felt uh, was irrelevant, you know, it wasn't it was already covered in bits by other. So at the end I selected. Yeah. And there's kind of different stories, you know, from coming out to your parents and being very traumatic episode for this person that told me the story. To in Canada to somebody in Bulgaria that both been domestically abused and politically abused by the state during the Cold War. Yeah, during, you know. And then a man in New Zealand 
orphanage, similar story. I could relate to him about, you know, priests. No sexual, but certainly mental and physical abuse. To a guy that has been raped in his life three times, from the age of 20 to 40, to, uh, now, uh, yeah. So I thought, I had this thing of collecting and I found suitcases and I saw suitcases as luggage, you know? And of course I see, I see ourselves as kind of bleak, big black holes, you know? This kind of big black bag with our own shit, you know? And so I wanted to somehow use the luggage as a metaphor for our bodies. The luggage is a body. And the luggage, you know, luggage, everybody has a luggage kind of metaphor, mm-hmm. whatever that is. And in this way, I'm identified both literally and also metaphorically, and also using history and a way to identify sort of type of identity, whatever ethnic, socio-political, religious, to kind of then put the story in, yeah. And then on the suitcases, you um, decided to cut out from the suitcases triangles and put different... Yeah, but this triangle, the cis triangle, the, the Nazi kind of used so prisoner could be identified not just by the guards, but by other prisoners tend to stabilize, stabilizing, stabilizing uh, an Iraqi order, you know? So also people that would help them, you know, example, the criminal, which were called the capos, they were like uh, privileged they had their own dormitory and they would control, take care of the Jews and the others. The others were not trusted, you know? The political, the antisocial, the religious, the pacifist, the hippie, or the, you know, the, the Pedophilus, there's even zoologists, you know, even people that are into animals, you know, but it's weird, the black, this triangle, you know, like the purple, the pink triangle, it wasn't just a gay pink triangle, but but it also had uh, pedophilia, people into animals, people don't ever say that, you know, like the way we, oh, you know, of course, in history, kind of, you know, be uh, queers or politics, social politics, you know, how the, you know, homosexuality and this politicization adopted the pink triangle there. But if you go look at that's another fucking 13 different people that have nothing to do mm-hmm. with homosexuality or, you know, that were in the, that were in the, in the in the canoe in the pink triangle. So technically somebody 
that is into animal could wear a pink triangle, but not necessarily being gay. Mm. You know, a pedophile could wear a pink triangle without, uh, you know, being gay. Yeah. So, it's interesting, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. This can also, in a way, negation, you know, an appropriation of image. I think it's as bad as doing it. Mm -hmm. Having a subit and then taking away, you know, to deny mm -hmm. somebody else. I, I think it's worse. I think it's terrible, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. You know, because I say, there's me. That's mine. That's no, mm -hmm. that's not yours. Because, you, you know, because it wasn't just you, mm -hmm. you know? You, you know, you are, there was a family, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, and you've mentioned that um, there are certain threads in this exhibition that link um, your experience now with, with what you've been working on, what you were saying, like, you know, years ago. And I think, like, ceramics is one of those mediums because you, you're showing a new body of work, Lost Boys, but ceramics has been also a very personal medium for you. Um, and yeah. if you could say a bit more about that. Well, the funny thing, if you read the book, um, I came to ceramic totally by kind of chance, but that, in a way, is also you know, destiny, you know? It happened, and I took, uh, and suddenly the, there was a, a door open into another world. I was given this opportunity, or well, I took this opportunity, you know, somebody stopped me in the street and said, why don't you come to ceramic with me? And I kind of went to ceramic with her. And then, you know, a year later, a year and a half later, one of the tutors that I got on with said, why don't you go to our school? And so then, after kind of him answering my kind of, kind of reservation about it, then I apply, and then again, you know, and then, you know, suddenly there's, an, there's a new road. There's a kind of, you see, you know, and uh, so there's, a, and then I went to, uh, then, uh, you know, by, so this was 1983, by 87, 86, middle 86, I wasn't doing ceramic anymore, but I was making sculpture and painting. And then by 88, I was making images, performance for cameras, creating images by using myself. By in particularly, you know, I wasn't doing, I didn't see them as performance. I was specifically create image using myself and documenting it because I can paint them, you know? And then, Another door opens, why don't you perform? Then I perform, and then, and then you know, and then suddenly you, you're stuck with that. Suddenly, people remember you for that. You know, suddenly, 15 years after I perform, 15 years after my performance at eight, I bump into, what's her name, Sarah Morris? Mm -hmm. at, of Tate? Francis. Francis yeah. Morris. You know, after I haven't seen her since 
or 2004, the latest. She sees me this year. Just, Franco B, you're not bleeding tonight, are you? You know, then you think, mm. you know, well. It's good that moved on. <laughs> she hasn't. Yeah. You know, what can you say? Yeah. You know. So, in a way, fuck them. Really. And maybe she didn't mean it badly, but it's quite stupid. You know. Kind of, obviously, there's no consequences in terms of she doesn't give a shit or bother to go to check what I do or not, you know. I don't know, because, you know, I'm not in her mind, you know. Sandra, she sees me, she remembers me for something different, rather than asking, what are you doing now, you know? And kind of really publicly screaming it, you know, loud, you know? Ah, Franco B, you're not bleeding tonight, and there's like 300 people in the room, you know? Yeah, and I fall. No, no, <laughs> no, and then, you know, small talk, and then she moved on, I moved on, you know? Mm. Not be surprised, I just kind of bother to go to check whatever's mm -hmm. still bleeding or not. Mm. But essentially, I'm still bleeding in terms that we bleed inside, I always say, I never stop bleeding, you know? But bleeding is the work, it's your life. You know, it's not the act of getting some drop of blood on a piece of canvas and call it art. I, I know that you were um, thinking about um, how it would be received today. What do you think has changed, like, between, you know, the, the last time you performed, like... Yeah, I don't know. It's a long, it's a long discussion. I think it's a long, it's a long thing, really. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a long answer, really, because mm. it's so. I mean, how will be the, how will be received today? A, how it will be received today as is, I am doing it, is one thing. Suddenly, you know. The man that bled is bleeding again, and then. You know. The fact that, you know, the world is bleeding. So, certainly, I think, in terms of, I think, uh, if I was in Franco B and I bled today, I would not, today I would not get the, the attention I would have got 25 years ago. Mm. 20 years ago, for a lot of different reasons, yeah, yeah, I think so, it's kind of complex, yeah, a lot of reasons, a news, the way we become anesthetized by trauma, you know, because there's real, the trauma is already there, but now we, we experience, you know, apart the domestic, but certain, but we become, an, you know, we allow it to carry on. Nobody stops it, you know. In a way, it's interesting about, um, you know, I really like this, um, 
teenager Greta Thunberg. Uh, Thunberg. Yeah. Yeah. They know. She tries to do something she doesn't even think, but it's interesting, what I find interesting. What I find kind of interesting is now is that these people that have been around for a long time, all DPs and whatever, ex-punks, to suddenly find this, um, you know, what you call ecological rebel- rebellion, and a kind of this find, I mean, you know, people were doing what they're doing now, you know, when, you know, Always done it. They done it with Thatcher. They did it with the poll tax. They stopped the street, you know. And uh, 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 there's a lot of stuff anti-war, CND, you know. So there's nothing new in that. But what I find interesting is that suddenly, you know, everybody, everyone in the world wants to do this uh, stop rebellion, you know. Ecologists, but I say, I was say. But why nobody's willing to do it for Palestine? Why nobody's willing to do it for Iraq? Why, why, why we don't fucking go to, you know, to, why don't we block fucking us for circles for two weeks, for a week, for um, the Kurds, you know? So that finds, uh, I find, uh, yeah, that's in a way, Yes, of course, because suddenly, if you're doing, you know, at the moment, I mean, but things, I think, will change. Because nothing will change. I mean, I don't... I think it's good that somebody like... I, I think it's good that the kids, in a way, become politicized through the environment. But I hope it's not just about that. It's like, in a way, I was politicized through punk, but then I became more astute, less disingenuous. I found out about other things. There wasn't just kind of, fuck you, I do what I want, I'm an anarchist. But like, what you do with that? Mm-hmm. What you do with the freedom that you take, you know? That you take for granted. What you do with it, you know? So I hope that, for example, in terms of, for, for younger kids, I think, uh, yeah, you know, you know, granddaddy grand or grand going to auntie, you know, being arrested, I saw an image, you know, yesterday in the Guardian, uh, this, you know, grandma, you know, grandmother being arrested for sitting, you know, for sitting in Oxford Circus, you know, or camping in Trafalgar Square, you know. And, uh, yeah, good honor, but why can, you know, Especially at the beginning, you know, I think there was certainly these things that, oh, it's for peace, it's for the environment, it's not aggressive, you know. But if it's anti-war, if it's anti-narming, Saudi Arabia, you know, you, you don't last in Oswald Street for a week, you know. So there is this kind of placid kind of tolerance. You know, but now suddenly they don't tolerate anymore. They're arresting everybody. They ban, you know, suddenly, even with them, we lost patience, you know, because they, most people think that they are, um, what you call a, 
this trapped in their life. You know, it's like you're taking trying to get a bus to go to Waterloo and you can't because there's a, you know, because they block there. But I think I don't mind on after changing my bus route for other things, not just for that, you know, but for Palestine, mm. for all the other things, you know, that really matter, for uh, what's happening, for the things that Boris says, for the thing that, you know, for the fact that there's between 150 and 250 people in the world that control everything, mm. our life, and I would say, you know, they have a kind of total, you know, control over finance, everything. You know, why don't we do mass protest against that, you mm. know? Why do you think that is? It's something that constantly kind of irritates me because I come from a place in the north of Ireland where I grew up in a time where people the trouble. went out and they they marched, they stood on the border, they did things, they were oh. active citizens. And I, like, this morning, I'm getting newly emotional about it, I felt so angry at the fact that people have adopted this complacency. Yeah, they are. You know, where it's a safe space for them yeah, to be. Because, like because what's happened, I think, um, very clearly, cleverly, the system, and it sounds like paranoia, big system, uh, 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 the system, you know, that the people that control the world that manage to create face less meaningful. People are more interested in, you know, people that, I mean, are people that, you know, the more interesting fucking, what is that program that everybody, Tron, what is the Tron, House of Tron? Oh, Game, yeah. Game of Thrones, Game of yeah. Thrones, you know, that, that mm-hmm. is, you mm-hmm. know, basically you feed people heroin, you know, opium, and you get them addicted. It's like football in a way, and uh, like in the 70s, and now it's something else, it's not just a business, but, uh, but certainly, I think is uh, is uh, lucky. Every so often, this you see people like Greta. I think, mm-hmm. you know, I support her, but I don't support the rebellion. I don't support uh, this group. You know, rebel. Ex- you know, extinct rebellion. Yeah, I really support Greenpeace when they were very active. Mm-hmm. When they, you know, I met people that were doing. You know, anti, they were, you know, climbing, you know, all your rings and stuff like that, mm. you know, anti wells, you know, all this stuff. So I think you have to become um, active, you know, just sitting there and wearing a buto clothes and do buto's gesture. I just find, uh, I just find theater, mm. you know. And then you hear some of these people, the people that kind of suddenly, you know, and they all, you know, mostly middle class, you know, and, uh, you know, say, I'm willing to be arrested, you know, yeah, because you can afford to be arrested. And I'm talking about money, I'm talking about fucking jobs, you know. If, if, if you are a working class person and you rely on a job, you get arrested even for something like that, you lose your job. You know, mm-hmm. and it's funny. There is a, there is a, you know, there's a thing I remember in the 70s, 79, You know, I remember there was this guy Julian. 
he was working for the London Transport. That was back then, it shows you. It was 79, and it, there was a photo of him in one of the newspapers in drag, with a knife, with a massetti, like a knife, a big butcher knife, kind of part of his costume, you know, and he had black coming down and a pink triangle. And he, he got sacked by London Transport, you know, in 79. Now, you will not imagine it, but you know, yeah, he, he, I remember he lost the job for mm. being, he wasn't even arrested, just for being photographed and being, and they sacked him and they yeah. could sack him, you know? Yeah. So... Or if you are an immigrant who gets arrested, you get deported. Exactly. <laughs> but also, I, although I have a status, mm. you know, safety status, what they call it, Abba? Settles. Settle yeah. status. Yeah. If I go to prison more than one day, I can be deported. Yeah. Yeah. So if I do, if I steal, mm. you know, example, you know, food or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter whatever, needed or no needed, I could be deported easily. Mm -hmm. As long as the magistrate said, okay, you have a 24 hours uh, detention, then they can apply for uh, indesirable status, mm -hmm. you know. And it's funny, it was something that used to fright, try to frighten me when I was doing lot of action and go arrested really? outside court cases, supporting people mm -hmm. that were, you know, against the Falkland War or other, or act up. And the first thing was like, you know, why you come here? Why don't you do this in your country, you know? And I say, we're going to deport you. But, you know, yeah, first you're scared, then you see a lawyer, and the lawyer says, well, your offense is not a prison offense, you know, it's a breaching the peace, obstructing the police, you know, or whatever, you know, being a nuisance, you know, at that moment it was not a prison sentence. So, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't be deported. You know, once you know the law, once you get your fact, you know, and every time they stopped me, they were kind of saying, sometimes stopped by the same copper. Say, you know, you're a pain in the ass, why don't you go fucking back to your country? You know, and give different names. Yeah, I mean, you know. But I think, in a way, to see, even if, it's a, you know, it's a, you know, recently in London, I saw the, in this kind of school out thing, I saw this kind of nice family, middle class, the dog, the two kids, blondes, you know. It was obvious, you know, they kind of find that, you know. I don't have anything against them. But of course, you know, it's a certain, you know, people, you know, working class, poor people, it's not because they don't know what's going on, but because they're more precious thing to worry about, it, you know, surviving, paying the fucking rents, not be homeless, you know? So that is the other thing. So I think we, these middle class people should be fighting for them as well. Not just for kind of willing to come out, you know. When you know when they when they brought out the tax, the you know the room tax in England, no, the bedroom, bedroom the tax, bedroom yeah. tax, you know. Why, why, why we don't, you know, there should be school out for mm. that, you mm. know. There should be good strike for that, you know. Anything that is an, that is anti-humanity, I think, you know, anti-social in the real sense, you know. Government and oppression is antisocial. No people, you know.
Yes, and uh, it's it's really like um, um, strange how you have to be like tuned in to. Um, to see those policies, like to really read the news and and uh, and follow the and developments, and to blame yeah. and to blame working class people mm. for not being political or for not being is wrong. I think, yeah. yeah, because you know we're in the shit. You don't see anything else, and it's, you think it doesn't belong to you. You don't understand, and and you think or whatever you're a victim of the. You have more preoccupation, whatever those are, you know, people being here not having money for medicine, not having access, you know, to, to things that we take for granted, you know. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, they're forgotten, you know, and they only blamed. And it what pisses me off, they blame for Brexit, and that really pisses me off, you know. They blame, you know, it's like stupid people, people on, on benefit, Voted for Brexit. That's what some people believe. It might be true, but it was true because they knew, because they're afraid, because they've been they've been talked liars by newspaper that are kind of owned by people that suits them. You know, to have people ignorant that the immigrant, three million immigrants, are gonna come and take the housing, taking the taking the benefit. You know. Yeah, and then, you know, I remember after Brexit, they went to Manchester, you know, the news, BBC and Sky, they went and they interviewed people. So why did you vote it? And I remember, you know, there was this kind of people, you know, that lived in a very poor area in Manchester, they went to this area, you know, white people, white English people, and they asked, you know, why did you vote Brexit? Because, you know, because they come and take her home, they take her social security. They're not from here. I'm from here. I have right. But who brought her in? I mean, the failure. The failure is also the failure. I think of you know when I was in Brixton and I saw how the system failed people. How you know the state, you know, failed black kids. You know, by not giving the right education, not giving the right care, even after the riot, you know. So there is an institution and political, kind of, you know, and it's the same at the done, you know, what Thatcher did, killed the working class, mm-hmm. killed the idea of working class and kind of association supporting and, and empathy and intrigue, you know, kind of really make people think that the xenophobia, the people that are going to come, you know, hey, you can go on your bike, means you can fuck your neighbor still. You can fuck, you know, you can basically screw, rob anybody if you can make it, you know? Or to be afraid, you know, to be afraid of people that are in competition with you, you know, dogs eat dogs. You know, and certainly, you know, and now with Brexit, I see as I, it's touch a carry on, you know, it's, there's nothing new. You know, Boris and I mean, the way the Tory are today, they are, I don't know if they will finish the job of Thatcher, but they're continuing. Mm-hmm. The ideology is that. There's no, there's no, there's no miss. They haven't gone off the road, you know, mm-hmm. totally. Yeah. Yeah. I know, I suppose we should say that this interview has been done on the 17th of October, isn't it, yeah. as well, which is the day that the deal has been agreed 
or Brexit. Just just on that kind of the well, people's Europe, voice. Yeah. Yeah. But the parliament has to vote. Yeah. 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 Which I think yeah, I think it'd be difficult. Although they don't need the DUP. They don't the, need them. Yeah. Yeah. But I think uh, Labour won't want to vote for it because the election. Mm. If they pass it and, the, and they get a deal, Boris will win the next election, mm. I think, for sure. But if they go, if the, the deal doesn't happen and, it goes, uh, and they go out without a deal, which probably Europe won't let them, I think. Because actually I found out yesterday something interesting. We were talking about it. Who was talking about it? Um, Europe, George was saying that Europe could stop, Europe could revoke Article 30 but by saying, you, you, you know, you run out of time, you have to redo it, mm -hmm. you know, apparently. Mm -hmm. So why they don't? Mm. Yeah. But anyway, it's just what pisses me off is that it's nothing... You know, it's like when people say it's nothing to do with me, therefore I don't care. Mm -hmm. But it's to do with you. But although it's to do with you from a point of view that there's a hand, more than a handful, but you know, let's say metaphoric handful of people that decide there's nothing to do with you. It's to do with the finance, with them fucking you over, with lower wages, no human, no workers' rights, etc. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, they see, you know, England's island, and like many islands, becomes a tax haven, you know? Yeah. I mean, London has been identified by, by you know, this guy. He's um, a brilliant mafia writer. as the most corrupted place, you know, in the world for money laundry, you know, and set you know, setting up wars, civil wars, financing, you know, in place where there's kind of mines, from copper mines to mines to where they take element for the phone, you know. Yeah, etc. Et set quartz, everything. Yeah, this is about is about, you know, dynasties. Mm -hmm. The Murdoch dynasty, you know, the the you know Etc. Yeah, Coca-Cola, everything. I mean, the fact that, you know, there's people that don't have water because the beer, Corona, is, yeah. you know, and Coca-Cola, you know, in, in, you know, we think really far away, but not that far away, you know? Yeah. It's disgusting. Depressing times. Yeah, so it's about them. Really, mm. and so while I see all the sandals of the world that are doing this kind of anti-clim, you know, rebellion, and what they call it, extension, um, extension of rebellion, extension yeah. rebellion. Really, yeah. extension is not about just about the environment. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about what we, yeah, what we do, yes, but it's what we do to ourselves, <laughs> to others. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. really. So really, I would like to see a strike about the Zionist about anti-Israel, you know, anti, anti mm. the Zionist state of Israel, you know. And it's really depressing, as people, you know, to look at these things, because it's like, you know, 
Yeah, like in the last election, you know, most people voted for two parties who voted for two parties that are willing to take more territory from mm -hmm. the Palestinians, to annihilate the Palestinians. So, you know, I mean, you can't just blame the politician. I'm sorry. No. You know? No. Yeah, you can't. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it's a kind of old one, but... You know, the anarchists, I remember when the anarchists, one of the first things I heard was people get the government they deserve, you know? Simple way to put it, but I do, I, you know, it's much more complicated, yeah. Because at the end, you know, it's like it, it really went, you know, when you try to talk to some people and say, you know, I'm not political, and you think you are. You can't escape it. The moment you say you're not political, is a position, you know? Yeah. Sitting on a fence is a position. Oh, everybody you know? has a voice. Yeah. And it's a really is a really strong effective one, you know? It's like telling people don't go to vote, you know? And I remember when I was an anarchist, I'd, you know, my group and people say, Don't vote, don't vote and I don't believe that now. I think even if it doesn't change anything, mm -hmm. you should use uh, your voice, even if you then scribble motherfucker motherfucker going to hell on the, on the, at least go and do it, exercise the right. Yeah. It's an action. It's an action. Yeah. Just, just on that, Franco, um, just on the power of the kind of single voice yeah. as well. Uh, in gallery one, just kind of going back to the exhibition as well, there is that haunting voice um, that is on a on a loop um, as a sound piece in the background. Can you speak which a one? bit about it? Because which one you call Galleria 1? I call it Galleria one, 3. Uh, <laughs> room 3. That's just because you've completely reconfigured the space. <laughs> it's now become Franco's gallery. <laughs> it's room 3. I'm the, sorry. The large space. <laughs> it's room 3. I know you want more. Uh, Jesus' blood never failed yeah. me. Yeah, because I think it's, it's amazing. But also the story, you know, this guy, old guy, kind of homeless, supposed with all his, you know, I don't know, baggage, I don't know, but some filmmaker, experimental filmmaker, very interesting one, experimental filmmaker, was making a film in Waterloo and recorded. And he happened to be... At the time, a friend or a room share of somebody, of Gavin Bryan, in London. And uh, I think in Covent Garden, maybe, or something around there. The, and, uh, and he heard, uh, he heard these guys, so Gavin Bryan, the story goes, that uh, I read, uh, took it, you know? Tuke was given to him, the guys, uh, and then took and then put in his composition, and his, you know, and then worked on, and then got different kind of treatment, you know. And um, out of all treatment, I decided to just use the voice, where it, you have his poor his uh, powerful voice, and untouched, singing this, you know, which is like. Uh, you know, I believe, not just religious belief, but certainly this kind of haunting 
thing, you know, kind of guy singing, Jesus' blood never let me, and then falling down. And uh, I just thought it was, was very, it doesn't matter whether it's Catholic or not. I just thought the idea of, you know, not giving up. What you believe in, not giving up your faith, you know, despite everything that happens to you. Yeah, in some cases, you know, could say stupidity, but I think uh, I don't see it like that. I think uh, to have that kind of, I think clarity, and and people say he was a drunk guy, you know, that, that he was a drunk guy, and I think to me, there's clarity. You know, if you believe in something, whatever, Jesus' blood never, Jesus' blood could be the bottle of wine, it could be his alcohol, it could be his drugs, you know, the metaphor, you know, that could be a metaphor, why not? Why only, you know, clever people have metaphor, you know? You know, because we, everybody, have metaphor, yeah, yeah. And I really liked that. And anyway, then I read, I read the story, and I know they fall out. The filmmaker named Fallout, I don't know why, but I, I got a feeling it was about the way, maybe. Then, of course, there's no credit to the guy. There's no, there's no, you know, he made this amazing piece of music because of this guy's voice. And then even then allowed Tom Wade to come in mm -hmm. and do it, which is horrible, I think. I really, when he comes in, he kills it. Because I just think, that is exploitation. Yeah, this, you know, Tom Waits probably got paid and gets royalty. This old guy doesn't, you know. Maybe I was thinking, maybe possible that Gavin Bryan gives to some charity. Mm. <laughs> you, know, for, you know, if he feels guilt, you know, mm. I don't know. But I don't know, sorry, but I heard that the, even the filmmaker fall out really badly eventually over the piece. Yeah. Yeah. And then I went and uh, the guy actually made a really interesting films, weird kind of screen splits, double screen film was making, it was connected with the kind of London filmmaker co-op. Yeah, it was underground, you know. It was kind of underground, kind of renowned, non-filmmaker, but never, never, never went mainstream by choice. Kept saying, you know, yeah, but just uh, looking in chat, I was looking at chat about this piece, trying to find out. There also read the interview that Tom Waite, I think Tom Waite said, and Gavin Bryan said about it. And I thought, the best thing is this guy voice, you know, the recording, the original, and you can hear also the, the street, the cars, mm -hmm. in the background, you know, yeah. No, it's interesting because then, of course, then also, you know, in a way I do the same. I take photos of strangers sleeping, you know, although they don't have face, they don't have name, they're not recognizable, you know. In a way, it's like, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's one of my, there's this guy I work with, which is a technical production manager for my, for my performances. I've been working with him for many years, called Steve. He worked with really with a lot of people in performance and dance. And uh, yeah, and I remember 
first time somebody take take photo of him, he said, no, don't. I get really angry, he said, you're stealing my soul. He said, you know, I don't want you to steal my soul. And then I thought about her, thought that's what I'm doing in a way, you know? Yeah, in a way you are. Yeah, but, but you know, you have to kind of, there's adjustment, you know, you kind of think, that kind of say, okay, but he doesn't know, and nobody knows who he is, and maybe in the scheme of things, it's important to show in this image, you know, because it's not, then it's not about him anymore. It's about, you know, the old condition mm. of abandoned, unloved, forgotten, abuse, question, what kind of life, it talks about our humanity, you know, the human, you know, and humanity and empathy. So I think it's important to show it, you know. And so what you do, you, what I try to do is to kind of make sure that in a way you, that person cannot be identified in, in a way be identified. Like when I take photo, you know, if I took a face, I wouldn't use it because I didn't want to take his dignity in a way, you know? As in, yeah, and then sometimes I will have people that want the wood pose. So, you know, would, you know, you give money, you, they, you can take, you know, Serrano did the project, not similar, but project where he photographed people in Belgium and paid them quite a bit of money. So I want to take a photo of you while you're begging, while you, you are like that, you know? I pay you how much you want. Oh, I give you, and uh, I think that's worse. Yeah, yeah, certainly, yeah. Because it's not anymore. It's a, you know, it's a performance for camera, you know. Yeah, the poor Romanian woman with the child or the junkie fixing, you know. We go back to, I mean, in a way, you know, there's, there's a kind of history of this kind of work, you know. And... Uh, I think there's a, there was a public, there was a show called Ama Camera. Do you know? No. It's beautiful. Uh, it's a collection of work from the 70 to in Tulsa and in different places, like people jacking up, which were friends of this guy, Larry. What's his name? The guy that did the guy that wrote Kids. Mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, this is a, yeah, 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 interesting, yeah, I mean, you know, then it's no, yeah, it's like documentation for the, documenting people's life, you know. Finished? Okay, very good, like, that's probably a good... That was very long. It was very long, that's a good place. <laughs> Are you going to choose it? To finish. Are you going to use it? Um, no, you going to cut it? Um, no, so. <laughs> so yeah, that's it, Shinny. Um, I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, bit of a break from my voice as well. I'm rage, only rage, and I wasn't in the room because um, you know me, love a chat. Um, I just want to thank Sylvia, Melissa, and Franco 
for allowing us to use this interview on our podcast. I'll see you next month for another episode. And until then, look after yourself. Stay safe. Bye. Arts Insight is recorded, edited and produced by Jerry Horn of Contact Studio. Contact Studio is a South Dublin County Arts Office initiative.